Hello everyone, it's February 15th, 2022. While Astra had a rough launch last week, the fairing failed to jettison, and when that happens, the rest of the mission doesn't happen. But at least they installed some cameras so we could pick apart the video and give our best analysis. So hey, let's do that. And lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 346 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. Uh, no Dennis today, since he's off doing something else, so it'll just be us. Yeah. Ben, you you said just before we started recording that you had that you did not watch the latest Starship update. No, t- tell me about it. Yeah, well, there's not much to say, so... Uh... <laughs> It was kind of underwhelming, to be honest. And I don't know if people in the chat feel differently, but... I saw that they finally stacked everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, What, like, is it Starship 12 and Booster 8 or something like that? But I, I saw the stack up and it looked really good and they used the chopsticks. Is is that what the what the press release was about or the I mean it was mostly stuff like that, but I don't think it was anything that we didn't already know. So I think if you pay attention to, you know, what's going on, then it's nothing new. So this was not like one of those big announcements where it's stuff that we didn't know ahead of time. This is just kind of like, you know, a summary update type of a thing, I think, for like the general public, maybe. Um, yeah. At least that's kind of how I saw it. Anyway, um, it was still cool. It, I feel like SpaceX does these things now because, it, or at least Musk thinks that he kind of has to or something. Like, it's just kind of what you do. It's kind of like the State of the Union address. You know? Right. It's yeah. like, the, yeah, it is that time of year, or I guess he does it twice a year, maybe. So even if there's nothing much to say, you still do it anyway. The big thing that I saw that I, because I guess I hadn't really seen it. I'm sure, again, this is something that has been available for some time, but the difference between the new Raptor engine compared to the old version mm-hmm. is is quite striking. Uh, the new version looks so much simpler. Um, that was kind of a shock. And the older one looked more complex than maybe any rocket engine I've ever seen. So I can see why they, <laughs> so I can see why they simplified it because it just had, it was just pipes and just crap everywhere. It just looked like a mangled mess. Yeah. I, I did, I did see a video of, of Raptor 2 on a test stand and yeah, it was notably slimmer. What, what led to that? So it's not like they changed you know, the engine cycle or anything like they, they just reorganized it. There weren't too many details given there. Uh, he did talk about basically eliminating a lot of flanges because he hates them because they're seals and you got to worry about that. Mm-hmm. So it's much simpler to just weld the thing. Um, so that actually gets rid of some complexity and some weight, but it just looked like there was a whole lot of stuff that was just yeah. not there. So I don't know it's, how they said It's it. harder to evaluate a weld seam than a than an o-ring seam though i feel like see i have no idea about that yeah well i I mean like i I don't either i I just know that like when you're validating an o-ring you just put the thing under pressure but when you're validating a weld you have to use like Mm -hmm. x-ray x-ray tomography or you know something i guess it's not tomography but you know you have to use x-rays to inspect it because it can fail in a pop sort of way whereas uh, o-ring is either seated or not seated as long as it can you know as long as it's rated for the environment it's going to experience you know that it's there i i think i I could be i could be wrong about about that difference but that's my understanding i'm looking at some sources and it sounds like they actually like cut the cost of raptor in half going from raptor one to raptor two that's that's insane Mm -hmm. man yeah i never i never noticed how much raptor one looks like a development engine it it looks like it's cobbled together not not in a bad way it's just like you know we're figuring this out and we're validating concepts and there's not a lot of time to do you know real high optimization kind of work 
And so, yeah, that it's, it's really cool. Like in terms of just like visual mass, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, uh, it, it, the, the number of tubes goes down by a factor of like three or four. Like it's really intense. And it's cool because you can see some of the rerouting that's been done. Things that used to be over top of something else are now underneath it. And uh, it looks like the thrust structure has changed pretty dramatically as well. I wonder if the Raptor 2 that they have sitting there is the not, uh, the not actuated version. Uh, cause the Raptor 1 that's, that's in this image has got some pretty big, uh, triangular support structures coming off. It looks like, you know, the four, four corners of a square. Yeah. I want, I wonder if that's an apples to apples comparison, to be honest. Not, not that I'm mad about it. I mean, like, you know, <laughs> make it look good. All right, so moving on in the news, Astra failure, so not such good news here. And this was a fairing failure, that that much we know. I was, you know, struggling to find out more information about what happened or what we can infer from what happened, I guess. Yeah, inference is, is going to be the key, <laughs> the key mode of thought here. Yeah. Okay, so so real quick, I wanted to, to talk about something else uh, tangential. The stock price of Astra dropped after the failure, and... Um, so I went and bought, I don't know, like $50 worth of shares. And I mentioned it in the Discord, and there was a little bit of a conversation about uh, conflict of interest. And I'm like, well, like, my initial instinct was like, well, I'm not a journalist. Like, I'm just a schmuck with a podcast. But, you know, we we do journalisty kind of things. And, like, I've referred to journalistic standards in the past because, you know, obviously I consider myself at least a little bit of a journalist sometimes when it's convenient to adhere to ethical standards. So I like, I, I own less than $70 worth of Astra stock. And I also own like some SpaceX stock and a mutual fund. And like, I just, I just want to get it out there that like, that is all true, but we already are biased and aware of our biases on this show and our biases change and me purchasing a little bit of stock to have fun watching the price go up and down is a result of my biases, not a cause of my biases. I mean, I'm sure it contributes a little bit, but like, I, I don't own enough stock that I'm actually worried about publishing a, a statement on, on the website or something. But like, I, I just, I thought it was a good opportunity to talk about like what bias is because like, yeah, we're, we're biased. You know, like I'm a huge fan of Astra. I know people that work at Astra. I, I think they're doing cool things. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I have biases. Um, and if you listen to the show and expect unbiased reporting, you know, you, you also need to look at every other source of news or, you know, third hand news coverage like we do. I guess fourth hand news coverage like we do. Um, like you, you need to look at every bit of, of news coverage and decide how how unbiased do you think they are? Because, you know, everyone has biases, um, whether or not they are disclosed, whether or not they are financial, everyone has biases. Um, and that's not to say that that makes journalism worthless. It's not to say that biases are, you know, that, that bias is necessarily bad. You, you have to identify what, what that bias is and apply that 
to how you uh, interpret the world mm-hmm. using the information that they've given you. I don't think anyone's going to accuse you of being like an Astra shill. <laughs> so I think we're fine. Yeah. Um, because you own $70. And that's the thing is we, we really beat up on a lot of space companies. So like, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. 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 And full disclosure, I don't own any stock in Astra. So I'm completely unbiased, which is not true, I, I suppose. But, right, but, um, right, right. No, yeah, yeah. I, I like that. Yeah. So yeah. So what happened? Well, um, like I said, uh, there was a fairing separation failure. Um, but I guess before we do that, we can talk about just what happened a couple of days prior to that. So on February 5th, and that was the original launch date, I think, or though maybe it was supposed to have occurred even prior to that. Yeah, I think, month. I think that was the second, second or third delay from the fifth. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but yeah, on the fifth, it was uh, scrubbed due to range equipment failure. So apparently there was a tracking radar that they needed in spacenews.com. Um, they state that the vehicle obviously can fly autonomously and that these were systems developed by NASA, but they had not been qualified, I think, by NASA, I think is a term that was used. And so they still needed to use like ground tracking uh, for certain aspects of the launch. So that's what happened, but they fixed that. And then on the seventh, they tried for a second launch, but then they had a telemetry issue with the vehicle and that's what scrubbed that failure in on that one i believe uh, the engines came on so like this was mm-hmm. down to like you know the final couple of seconds but then they scrubbed the launch at the last second and so yeah the actual launch occurred on the 10th and things uh, seemed to have been going well up until uh that fairing separation and i guess we should go over exactly how the rocket stages right because this is something yeah that is a little bit unconventional so uh, this is a rocket that um i guess well different but not entirely unlike the neutron rocket will be kind of which is that you have a second stage that's sort of like inside of a fairing yeah well yeah it's it's the inner stage doesn't extend to the bottom of the second stage it actually envelops the bottom of the second stage so your the fairings are are much smaller than they would have to be with a normal configuration um so even when you deploy the fairings the thing is still half inside the inner stage kind of poking out like a rocket from a bunker. So it's not as though the second stage launches with the fairing or could even do so. It it has to break or it, you have to have the fairing, you know, removed before the second stage can lift off or can fully separate. Separate, yeah. Yeah, separate. I shouldn't have said lift off. That's a weird term. <laughs> um, the engines definitely are not on. But in this case, the engines did come on when the fairing was still in place. And so that led to a pretty violent event and a tumble. And I'm not good at, you know, doing like visual analysis of things so I kind of rely on you know like Scott Manley I watched his video a couple times over but apparently what can be seen is that the the fairing failed to separate because of a latch well so the Scott Manley video is is really really good he noticed this latch um, which it's covered by one of the cameras so there are two cameras inside uh, inside the fairing one is at the bottom uh, of the inner stage, the, the top of the first stage looking up. And then the other one is on the second stage looking back over the engine bell. And in the, in the first stage camera that looks up, you can see the second stage takes up most of the view. And then the, uh, you can see like half of the inner stage and half of the fairing. Um, and it's really nice because this, the fairing seam, one of the two fairing seams is plainly visible, uh, in the video. The, the fairing runs almost vertically through the shot. I mean, it's actually canted off to one side, but, and, uh, so Scott Manley, uh, grabbed footage from a previous mission. Um, this mission was the Alana 
Alana 5 mission, I think. And so he, he grabbed video from uh, a previous mission and compared the two. And yeah, you can see the the separation plane of the fairing in a successful fairing separation um, they sort of do this in multiple stages. First, they release latches that hold the fairing tight together and the, the seam opens up a little bit. And then they, I'm assuming, are releasing latches on the base of the fairing. And that allows the fairings to be pushed by uh, sprung pins or uh, uh, maybe uh, actuated pins, pneumatic or elect electrically actuated pins. Um, but the, the fairings fold outward on hinges and then uh fall off right so it's the hinge doesn't fully capture the fairing it's sort of like a like a half c shape and so once you get beyond a certain point you can just fall out of that hinge um and so the latch failure that you're talking about is one of the latches apparently opens because light floods into the fairing at that point of the separation sequence, but you don't see any separation of the fairing seam on the side that we can see of the seam. And the, the latch in the, in a successful fairing separation, you can see the latch pull apart into two pieces. Uh, and in this, it, it stays solidly closed. And I, I think Scott's probably pretty spot on with his analysis that, that that latch was the, the failure point uh, that kicked all this off. And when he said you can see light coming in, first of all, I again, I'm bad at this. I couldn't see any difference in light. But also, was he talking about light from Earth? Is that what that is? Because I don't know where the light would be coming from. Like, what light's coming in? Yeah, the, the sunlight. Okay. Either direct or sunlight, like sunlight or reflected sunlight from the Earth's surface or the atmosphere. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm surprised that you can't see any lighting difference because, like, there's clearly a change in the video um, when when the latches are supposed to open. And even if you don't identify it as light coming from a particular source, I, I think you can see a change in the video. Well, to me, it almost looked more like it was just uh, different reflections of light due to the movement, not necessarily light coming in, but just because it's such a highly reflective interior that like maybe things are just yeah. kind of like being lit differently. There's a floodlight inside there. Yeah, it seems reasonable that that could be light from a floodlight as well. But I, I think I think when you keep the geometry in mind, it really, to me, it looks like sunlight coming in it's also bluer than the floodlight is so the next thing that happens right is uh, the fairing does not separate it is partially cracked open and then the engine comes on but the fairing is still there well right so so the latch opens and then the fairings are actually pushed away and you can see a jolt when when that process happens but the fairings mm. stay <laughs> solidly in view and then the spacecraft is released and you can see it float forward and slam into the front of the fairing. And then the engine comes on. And that that's when things really get bad. I mean, just imagine igniting a rocket engine inside such a confined space like that. Uh, it's no wonder that the fairings at that point separated because that's what's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, that is just, you know, a huge explosion. Although the upper stage did not explode, which honestly to me is almost kind of surprising just because it was still deep inside that rocket. Like I'm kind of surprised that it did as well as it did, that it still separated from the vehicle, you know, like that it took off. Yeah. I mean, it, it like went into a tumble, but just imagine lighting a rocket engine down inside that rocket. And, and what's interesting is that um, the rocket ignites and it takes a second for those fairings to come off, which um, Scott Manley and a, a number of other people interpret 
as um, the fairings not blowing off due to the impact, but rather due to the pressure buildup inside the, the fairing. And I think that seems very reasonable. Um, but yeah, it's, it's sort of a double-edged sword, right? Like you really don't want to light an engine in such a confined space, but you know, if that's what finally gets the fairing out of the way, it's, you know, could, could yeah. be worse. <laughs> and then, like you said, yeah, it just, it goes into a tumble and it doesn't matter if they could have recovered from that tumble. They, you can just see the Delta V leaking out of this thing, like, uh, like water through a sieve. And I guess that tumble is just, you know, due to the very chaotic dynamics of just by igniting the engine inside that space. But um, one thing that, uh, that is noted in the video is that the fairing comes off at kind of like an angle. And so I guess that's because, you know, one side was latched, one side wasn't. And so yeah. once it finally blew off, it just, you know, kind of came off to one side. Um, and I guess maybe that perhaps caused a bit of the roll, uh, but who can say? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I, I think, I think that's absolutely reasonable. Even if we don't, even if it's still speculation, it's, it's reasonable speculation. <laughs> yeah. So, which kind of makes me wonder if it came off not correctly, because obviously it should have already been deployed, but I mean, had it shot through that fairing and the fairings had separated symmetrically, do you think maybe yeah. it could have made it? I mean, it, it would have to be perfectly symmetric because like you snag a little bit on either side and that's going to impart rotation. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think it's fair to say that it, it was symmetric enough that the uh, second stage didn't get wedged inside, right? If it, if it yeah. rotates too much while it's inside the fairing, um, you can have the nose trapped by one fairing half and the engine bell still inside the, the yeah. fairing and it, it just, it wedges itself in there. And, and that would have been maybe not worse because, you know, none of the payloads made it to orbit, but it would have been a more spectacular fairing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's let's look at the chat real quick. Uh, Chris calls this uh, unplanned, rapid unplanned separation RUS instead of uh, RUD, rapid unplanned disassembly. Yeah, this is not the right kind of disassembly. Uh, it's it's unrapid planned disassembly. It's not it's disassembly not happening fast enough. Uh, and then uh, Colin says the uh, the payload might have been smashed even as the the separation went like even if it made it to orbit that that payload is not rated for uh slamming its face <laughs> into a fairing so yeah that that's uh also quite a possibility yeah that's a good point and the payload was four cubesats uh so in three of those were from universities and then there was one from nasa so i can imagine there are, are a lot of very disappointed university students who worked very hard <laughs> there was um i mean and there were some pretty interesting cubesats there was one that was testing a way of deorbiting spacecraft so this was like a tether of some sort i believe yeah that sucks and then the one by nasa was uh a test of a more cost-effective way to build cubesats so i guess uh, this particular cubesat was built by some other techniques cardboard yeah they, and they were just gonna try and flight prove it but never made it that far um so not a great day uh for astra or its uh shareholders <laughs> but, uh... i mean I think I think I owned like two shares and then I added like another 10. So like, it, I mean, it was a good day for me. <laughs> but but you, you buy them when they're cheap. Um, I just want to also mention because I kind of checked out NASA's space flight and I looked at the discussion thread because that's always interesting to see what people are saying. And so, I mean, the consensus was that, you know, at least we know what the problem is. But then there were some other people saying, well, not really, because we don't know what the exact cause of the problem was. Although it does seem like it's probably that latch. But I mean, this could prove to be... 
a much more difficult thing to solve. And there are some suggestions. That, and in fact, I kind of had the thought too that could this be due to the Florida weather because they're launching from Florida, and so maybe there was some kind of a I mean ice buildup, perhaps or, or salt buildup. I mean, like yeah, it's it's a bad place to put a rocket outdoors. You know, in terms of all the places you could put a rocket outdoors. This is not not the best one. Yeah, and, and this is after several days of not having launched. So maybe had it not been sitting on the pad for so long, or I, I don't know if they brought it back in. But either way, you know, it's exposed to the Florida exactly. air. And, and this certainly would not be the first time that the Florida air has killed a mission. It does do that. Wait, yeah. wait, I mean, it's kind of crazy because launching out of Alaska, you'd think that Alaska would be a pretty harsh environment. But the fact that the temperatures tend to be lower means mm -hmm. that you don't have as much moisture in the air. I suspect that there's not quite as much salt in the air either. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I haven't been to either place, but looking at video from Pacific Spaceport Complex, uh, Alaska, P P PSCA, uh, like it, it looks really nice. <laughs> it, ju it just looks pretty. And I guess that's probably why my brain is going, nah, it's, it's okay. There's nothing wrong there. It's pretty. It's got to be great. Yeah. Well, I mean, Florida, it, like if you have hot, humid air, yeah. things are just more likely to happen at a faster rate in heat. Uh, plus, I think the Atlantic Ocean is saltier than the Pacific. Something something tells me that, there, that there's more ocean spray there, which is weird because they don't yeah. have cliffs. But yeah, I mean, how how hot is it in Florida right now? I mean, it's... It's freaking February. It's, it's probably not that hot, actually, but yeah, it's still H hotter way than Alaska. Than that's than for Alaska. sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, that's what we have so far. And uh, man, so Astros just you know all kinds of different little things go wrong, but they fix them and they move on. So let's just hope that that continues. I suspect that it will. I mean, this is not a company yeah. that's in any huge trouble or anything. So right, they got they got plenty of money, and yeah. they have planned for failure after failure after failure. So. Like it, it sucks that this wasn't a success, but you know, they learned something from it. They've got great video of it. <laughs> Presumably that's going to help because yep. uh, I don't think they're going to recover any of this thing. All right, moving on to short and sweet. We got three shorts and sweets, short and sweets, whatever. Ben, what's the first one? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, mysterious moon masher. Object WE0913A was discovered in March of 2015 and identified as a possible near-Earth asteroid, but was soon found to be in a Earth-centric orbit rather than a Sun-centric one. Bill Gray of the Planetary Society initially misidentified it as the Falcon 9 upper stage that launched Discover, but after receiving better trajectory data from the Discover launch, he re-identified it as 2014 065B, Chang'e Five's upper stage. Its trajectory has not been straightforward due to lunar gravity and propulsive venting of liquids and perhaps batteries, but it is a close match to an amateur radio CubeSat that was a rideshare with Chama 5. One thing is certain though, it will be impacting the moon on March 4th at 1225 UTC. The impact site will almost certainly be in Hertzsprung Crater on the far side of the moon, but the Yarkovsky effect may be enough to push the impact outside the crater's boundaries. And then next up, James Webb is making adjustments. JWST is now beginning the months-long process of aligning the 18 segments of its primary mirror. An image of a single star taken with the telescope's near-infrared camera shows 18 images of the star as the mirrors are not yet aligned to produce a single stacked image of the star. These initial results are very similar to what was produced in 
and simulations and are of no concern at this stage in the telescope's calibration. There is still the possibility of a serious flaw in the mirror, but at this stage, it is likely that it would have already been spotted. If all goes according to plan, the alignment will be complete within the next three months. All right, and last up, Starship testing may move to Florida. SpaceX is considering shifting orbital testing of Starship to Florida. This will depend on how quickly the FAA completes its environmental review for orbital Starship launches from Boca Chica. There has been no official word yet, but a rough indication suggests that there might be an approval sometime in March. The environmental review was supposed to be completed by the end of 2021, but public concerns and discussions with other agencies have pushed the decision back. A more rigorous environmental impact statement may be called for, which can take up to a year to complete. In this instance, SpaceX would shift testing to Florida in order to maintain its pace with Starship development. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns and cool videos that we can watch on YouTube. Yay! Ben, you have one that I don't know where you yeah. found it, but yeah. uh, you love yeah. this video. Oh my gosh, I am so excited. Well, I found this when uh, Connor, longtime friend of the show, previous contributor, busy space person now, <laughs> mm. uh, uh, Connor direct messaged me with a link and I was like, oh, interesting. So like Connor uh, sent it to me saying, hey, did you see that you got a shout out on a YouTube video? And then like, I saw what the YouTube video was and I was like, I don't care about the shout out. This is way too cool. So this is on the Breaking Taps uh, YouTube channel, which I've never seen before, but it's a great name. And uh, I started watching some of his other videos and they're really, really good. It's an interesting engineering channel that reminds me a lot of Applied Science, Ben Krasnow's uh, YouTube channel, where it's just like, here's an interesting concept. Let me see if I can replicate the method from this study. It's got a dash of the build aspects of this old Tony. Um, it's, it's really good. Um, lots of, uh, really advanced science. He's got his own scanning electron microscope and, uh, he, you know, he does a lot of things with lasers and, uh, and it's really cool. Just like, you know, taking, uh, papers and trying to replicate their methods for the most part and, and finding cool, uh, cool techniques that aren't available to most people, but are totally doable in a lab. Um, re really some cool stuff. So this crazy person uh, listens to the show, gave us a shout out at the end, which is like, it, it was a very good shout out. He described our show better than I can. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But I've been obsessed with the uh, hexapod actuators on James Webb, right? Um, they're the, the mechanisms that, uh, point the main or the, the, the primary mirror segments. Um, and it's, it's that really cool design where there's one stepper motor that can drive, uh, the mechanism through a course adjustment of like five centimeters or something, but it's, it's, fine adjustment uh resolution is in the nanometers it's it's really really incredible by the way i exchanged a few emails with uh dr hyde from uh our interview last week and uh he said that yeah actually there were a number of different designs that were competing um and this is the only one that only had one stepper motor which like totally makes sense like 
Because I, I was like drilling him. I was like, so has any, because I sent him this video, <laughs> right? I was like, wait, did you, did you see this though? Um, and, uh, I was like, like how many times have we been constrained in this interesting way where you need a very large travel range, but a very fine resolution. And, uh, like, I don't think it's ever been done before, but yeah, everybody else had to use two different uh, two different actuators for this. It's pretty neat. But anyway, so I've been obsessed with this mechanism. And one of the things I've been trying desperately to do is to stay on task with the like two or three hobbies that I'm actively keeping up, uh, aside from this podcast. Good Lord. And, uh, I've been trying to stay on task on those and not spend a bunch of time 3D printing a version of this and breaking taps went ahead and designed it and 3D printed it and built it. And it's wobbly. It is clearly 3D printed, but gosh darn it, it works. And it's such a great, uh, a great demonstration of how this mechanism works. Um, because he can actually like take it apart and show you different parts of it. And, uh, it's, it's really, really lovely. I feel an incredible sense of warmth when I, when I think about this video and this, this model. I have not yet 3D printed. I have actually, I haven't even downloaded the, the files off of Thingiverse, but. Uh, I want to, and now I'm going to have to uh, restrain myself from updating the design to use an action to, to dial in the, the ball screw mechanism. So instead of a ball screw, uh, this model uses a coarse threaded bolt, um, which is where the wobble comes from, to be honest. Also, it, it would be nice to use metal shafting instead of 3D printed shafting. I, I love wholly 3d printed designs but uh the the plastic shafts really have a lot of um not discontinuity but unstraightness to them and it's just the nature of of 3d printing and gluing things together and so like there are a bunch of different refinements that could be done um and i'm trying really hard not to <laughs> not to go do them um i think the fact that it's that it was designed in um, Fusion 360 is probably a, a, a good thing because I I don't use Fusion 360 anymore because I am so fed up with the uh, with the uh, the payment free model plan situation and so uh, I I would have to like import it into something else and work with it but um but yeah it, this this model is so good and. I need to 3D print and assemble one of my own because this needs to sit on my desk. Um, it's, it's just lovely. So thank you. Thank you so much for putting this together and making my dream come true. Like really, <laughs> uh, I, I said, you know, I, I really hope that somebody can do this because I, I, I do not have the time to do it. And somebody went and did it. And like, I, I am so thrilled and so chuffed and uh thank you so much um but there will be a link to the youtube video in the show notes um go check it out if you are currently listening to the show because of breaking tap shout out thank you for listening go and listen to our interviews first the orbitalmechanics.com slash interviews is a list of them they're far better than any of our other episodes maybe that'll get you to stick around a little longer before you decide that we're just way too uh way too goofy and inaccurate and speculative which we are all those things yeah but we get some things right occasionally too. I think that they're yeah. right there with us in that, you know, we, that's the value of the show is that we kind of speculate in the same way that the listeners are as well. You know, it's sort of like 
It's that yeah. kind of like, I mean, it's just us conversing, but in a sense, well, the idea is And to is be sure, like our speculations have gotten a lot better now that we mm-hmm. can draw on so many very smart people in the chat. Yeah, for sure. That, that the little us. chat explosion that we had last year uh, or the year before really, really uh, has helped. Cool. All right. Well, moving on then to this week in spaceflight history. So we have five winners. We have Dusky Miller, Ben Howard, Law Loving, The Greek, and Leon Running Man. And the clue was BC, more like BC you later. So that was BC Dennis's you clue. later. That was a clue from Dennis. But Ben, you have the <laughs> event. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing the coverage. All right. So this week in spaceflight history is the 17th of February, 2007. It was the launch of Themis, not Themis. I actually found a video with, I think, the PI who pronounced it Themis. I'm like, okay, great. Um, and uh, Themis is a Greek god, I think actually a um, a titan, uh, but the the god of justice, which is a really cool name because the Themis mission uh, was built to answer a question. We had a couple of different possibilities and, and we needed more data to be able to pick between them. And so I actually found an infographic where it said, which happens first? Uh, Themis, the god of justice, will decide, uh, you know, like discriminately or something like that. It's just, it's kind of a fun little, uh, fun little, uh, Greek god goof. Okay. So Themis is a backronym that stands for time history of events and macroscale interactions during substorms. Uh, so mm. substorms are this really interesting phenomenon. Um, they are, uh, an upper atmosphere effect, um, that basically results in the, uh, aurora getting brighter and dancing around. Um, and so substorms, uh, I, I'm going to do a little bit of a spoiler alert here and talk about what we know them to be now based on the, the Themis data, but there, there, there's this disturbance uh, in the magnetosphere of Earth that results in energy being transferred from uh, magnetic flux lines in the tail into high the high latitude ionosphere, so the ionosphere up at the poles up up and down the poles. So what happens here is um, the the tail of the Earth's magnetosphere is very turbulent, and because it's a uh, a magnetic object. It's built out of almost like tree rings, right? Like these, these magnetic flux lines, uh, run from the North Pole to the South Pole. But when they flow out into the tail and get all turbulent, they get tangled and, and it really looks like the grain of wood when it's, you know, uh, cut in half. Like you really get these undulations, but everything is, you know, in theory connected to, uh, uh, oppositely charged end of the magnetic flux. And so what happens is as they get tangled, loops and breaks are formed, but eventually magnetic flux lines find their pair and collapse shut and form a loop instead of two open ends. Um, that's called a, a reconnection event. And when a reconnection happens, uh, energy starts to flow in new ways. Uh, electromagnetic energy starts to flow in new ways, or it gets rearranged in new ways and then uh, induces energy flow in other materials. In this case, it's, um, the, the plasma of the solar wind. Although, you know, the interior of the wake is not really filled with 
solar plasma anymore, right? Because it's it's the wake of the Earth. Um, but what's really cool is that these reconnection events actually can redirect the diffuse plasma or ionize gas particles into plasma. And then those ionized particles start moving uh, along the the flux lines, right? It's it's just like um, uh, like every um, electromagnet uh, in every uh, solenoid in the world, right? So um, when that happens, these ions get pulled together and and pushed down towards the Earth's surface, which is unexpected and weird, but, you know, kind of cool. And also, yeah, you know, in retrospect, it kind of makes sense. Um, so, right, you have the, the reconnection event, plasma gets uh, generated and shoved in towards the Earth. And as it hits the ionosphere, it results in very uh, active uh, aurora or aurora. Um, really cool. So when Themis launched, the question was, which way does the air with time flow? Uh, what causes what? Is it the, the substorm causing a reconnection or is it the reconnection causing the substorm? And it, it's kind of annoying to me that like this was a huge question because like if it's the substorm causing the reconnection, what caused the sunstorm? <laughs> right. <laughs> the reconnection is, is a causative event in and of itself. The motivation is, it's finding a lower energy state, but a, a sub a substorm is a higher energy state. Uh, so there would have to be something else causing that. So it's it's kind of weird to me that this was actually a question when, you know, the it's it seems obvious the spontaneous event happens before other events. But this is probably a misunderstanding due to my lack of knowledge about uh, uh, solar physics or uh, uh, magnetospheric <laughs> physics. Um, so to study this, um, the Themis mission uh, was was commissioned, was designed, and it's really cool. Um, there are five satellites, uh, Themis A through Themis E, and um, these five satellites are going to go into different orbits, but they're all built identically to really get that cost savings of, uh, you know, a very small economy of scale. And so they put, uh, they put all five of these into highly elliptical orbits. Um, but three of them were inner probes. They orbited in, a, in an elliptical orbit. So the high point of their orbit was about 10 Earth radii. And then there were two at a higher orbit at 20 Earth radii and 30 Earth radii. And they designed these orbits so that they had a resonance. Uh, every four days, all five of these satellites would all be at their apoapsis at the same time. They'd all kind of like line up at the high point in their orbit. Now, since they are in orbits around the Earth, as the Earth goes around the sun, the point on the clock where the apoapsis points is stable relative to the sun or, or consistent relative to the sun. But as the Earth goes around the sun, it sweeps around the Earth um, when you're in like an, an Earth-centric orbit. Uh, point of view. Um, so you can think of uh, a reference frame where you're looking at the earth and the sun is always in one direction. Usually it's depicted as being off to the left. Um, and then the, the orbits of, of the Themis spacecraft will sweep around the earth from that perspective. Um, starting, uh, they, they actually launched pointing at the sun and they sweep around to the the terminator the 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 twilight zone and then they go into the night side and then back up to the other terminator 
And doing this, they get slices of the magnetosphere at different altitudes at different times, but it's sort of this coordinated effort. And so you get very good, um, data points and circling the earth over, over the course of a year. And then at different altitudes within an, an instantaneous, like a four day window. And all of that data, uh, led us to the conclusion that substorms are caused, uh, by reconnections. So these orbits are moving around the earth as the earth goes around the sun. And that that's great, but eventually they get perturbed, um, by the moon, by the sun, to some extent by other planets and they wind up precessing at different rates because they've got different altitudes. And so the orbits eventually process to the point where they no longer hit apoapsis at the same time. And additionally, their apoapses were no longer aligned in a line. So the data they collect is helpful, but not quite as helpful. In 2008, uh, one year later, they had collected, you know, a full revolution around the sun's worth of data. Uh, the orbits were perturbed and they decided we can go do other things with these spacecraft. So the lower three spacecraft stayed in orbit, um, but the upper two spacecraft were retasked. Those upper two spacecraft were Themis B and Themis C, hence the clue, hence the first part of the clue. Uh, B and C got renamed to Artemis. Uh, Artemis is a backronym for acceleration, reconnection, turbulence, and electrodynamics of the moon's interaction with the sun. Oh, a bigger woof there. <laughs> All right. Uh, but the Artemis, uh, mission, oddly enough, wound up going to the moon, right? They're going to go study the, the moon's effect on, uh, on the solar wind. There is no connection between the Themis Artemis and the Apollo Artemis, right? Like <laughs> totally, total coincidence as far as I know. So to get these two vehicles to the moon, um, which is where they are now, this is, this is really, really cool. So to get to the moon, uh, from their two orbits would take about 500 meters per second. But that's like an ideal, like Kerbal Space Program, five meters per second. You also have to add in fuel margin because you don't want to run out of fuel before you get to the moon. And then you also have to take into account the losses from long thrust arcs. These are fairly low thrust uh, engines. There are actually four of them on each of the satellites. Um, but like all of that adds on to the ideal best case scenario, 500 meters per second. Uh, these spacecraft had 325 ish meters per second worth of propellant. So how do you get them to the moon? Well, of course, the answer is you do a really weird two body or, or non two body, uh, solution, trajectory solution. So, uh, they had to do two lunar flybys. So they boosted themselves up a little higher so that they would pass by the moon. And that kicked them up into a high orbit. And then they flew past the moon again, which kicked them into an earth flyby. And, uh, all this, uh, all the, all the major movement happened in, in 2010. And, and so they, they fly past the earth and then they're kicked up into this really 
Well, actually, I guess they have to fly past the moon after they fly past the Earth because they get kicked up into this really high orbit and then they are slowly captured by the moon. So they go into a, a circular orbit that's uh, above the moon and the moon slowly pulls them in. And the way that they set this up was that they would get pulled into uh, Lissajou orbit um, around the moon's L2 uh, Lagrange point. So the Lagrange point on the opposite side of the moon from the Earth. What's really neat is that this was the first time we'd ever put anything into this type of orbit around the moon. Uh, it's very neat. So they uh, they get into that configuration. They kind of do this kidney bean-shaped orbit uh, on either side of the moon, and they slowly move themselves down uh, into a, an actual lunar orbit. So they, they got into the... Uh, Lissajou orbit in early 2011, and then they uh, finished their migration into a lunar orbit uh, in June and July of 2011. So what's really cool is that not only did they have all of this limited delta V, right? Like that's the that's the initial problem. Once you say, okay, well, we're not just going to do this direct uh, transfer to lunar orbit, um, you also have to solve um, this three-body sort of uh, of orbital dynamics problem, and there are additional restrictions uh, that made that solution harder. Uh, first off, um, the amount of thrust that these guys can put out is low to begin with, but they actually had reduced thrust available to them as their tanks started running dry. Uh, I'm not 100% sure why that's the case. So then they not only can they not uh, apply 100% thrust. But they also have limited directions that they can apply the thrust because um, the Themis satellites use spin stabilization. They spun at about 20 RPMs. And so that means that you, yeah, Colin suggests pressure fed engines. That's, that seems likely. Um, so the reduced thrust would be more about the pressurant that you have uh, to top up your, your tank pressure. Sure. That, that's, that seems, that seems reasonable to me. So uh, when you have these things spin stabilized, uh, you can uh, put out thrust in any direction, but any thrust that's off axis uh, is is going to be reduced as you're spinning around, right? Um, and, and indeed, these things have four thrusters. Two of them point in the same axis as a spin. Two of them point in opposite directions in the spin plane so that you can spin up and spin down with them if you really wanted to. Um, but they're, they're on the same side of the spacecraft. So you can also use them to push yourself in, in an off axis way. It's just, you have to wait until your spacecraft is pointing the right direction and, and pulse over and over. So, right. Not a lot of fuel, not a lot of thrust, not a lot of places that you can point that thrust. <laughs> and then also they had to make sure that they were not in earth's shadow for more than four hours. The, the batteries would actually die, or at least the batteries would drop low enough that the vehicle would be unrecoverable. And if they hadn't have moved these two vehicles, they would have died. Uh, they, they would have run out of power um, in the, the orbit that they were on as it uh, continued to move around the Earth. So with all of those uh, restrictions in place, they were still able to find a, a, a valid solution. Uh, I've got a really good GIF that'll be in the show notes um, that depicts the Earth to the Moon portion uh, of their trajectory. It's, it's really cool uh, finding uh, solutions for problems like this. I, I love orbital dynamics. Orbital dynamics are both 
easy to understand and hard to understand at the same time. It's really cool. Uh, Kerbal Space Program is responsible for the easy part. <laughs> um, the doing the actual calculations is, is well beyond my abilities, but I, I can understand what's going on at an intuitive level. And that's yeah. just that, that's so cool. That's a great, uh, bit of knowledge to have. Thank you, Kerbal Space Program. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of how I feel about it. I don't play Kerbal Space Program, but I have a pretty good intuitive knowledge, but I could never actually, you yeah. know, calculate any of these things yeah yeah it would it would take a lot of learning <laughs> to get to be able yeah. to calculate them on our own well that was an awesome this week in space flight history and i think you did a good job i think that dennis would be proud so <laughs> <laughs> i barely talked about the science so maybe not all right well i think you're doing this week sf next week right possibly yeah so do you have a clue for us yes i do for next week in 1996 the clue is this is why we keep the mezuzah rolled up all right well if you think you know what this clue is in reference to, send us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF with your guests, and good luck. Good luck. Moving on to upcoming spaceflight events, just two launches this week. So what is the first one? All right. So first up, a Progress, Progress 80, is going to be launching before this show airs, but it'll be docking after this show airs. So the rendezvous and docking is going to be on Thursday, February 17th. Coverage on NASA TV will begin at 1.30 a.m. Eastern time, way too early for me. The docking is scheduled at 2.06 a.m. Eastern time. And then after that, on February 19th, we have the launch of an Antares, and that's with uh, NG-17. So this is carrying the 18th Cygnus cargo freighter, and this is uh, named Piers Sellers. Uh, and this is launching in the 230 plus configuration, which is with two of the already 181 first stage engines and then a Castor 30XL. So I guess this is just a Castor engine, but extra large. So that is the vehicle launching at 1739 UTC from pad 0A in Wallops or from Wallops Island in Virginia. So check that out if you can. So that'll be 1239 on the East Coast, uh, 1739 UTC. So that's a pretty good time for people to check it out. And it's cool to see things launch from Virginia. I think yeah, so. Yeah, that's, that's true. On February 21st, we have the rendezvous and capture of the Cygnus. Rendezvousing with the International Space Station. Uh, the capture is scheduled at 4.35. Uh, and again, that's Eastern time. Uh, since we're talking about NASA TV. And then coverage begins for installation at 6 a.m. So three hours later, pretty early. So yeah, probably not going to be watching that one. Yeah. It might still be going by the time I'm up and moving, but yeah, NASA TV for both of those. All right. And then uh, finally, uh, we have a Falcon 9 Block 5 launching Starlink Group 4-8. So another 59 Starlinks. Hopefully these won't deorbit immediately. Uh, yeah. I, I have not looked at the solar forecast, but uh, <laughs> yeah, boy, that was unfortunate. Yeah, that was unfortunate. We we didn't talk about that, so we didn't talk about that, it at all, did we? Yeah, no. I mean, it's a it's a pretty unusual event. Um, and I guess so. Maybe, I mean, we can maybe talk about it next week. But basically, uh, a uh, I mean, it's actually an interesting series of events, right? Because yeah. uh, what caused it to happen? Some people might think that it was like you know due to the solar storm directly, which I guess right. in a way it was, but it right. wasn't. Zapping their, yeah, right. zapping their electronics, yeah. Uh, that has a launch window uh, that's a couple hours long. So it's uh, Sunday, February 20th from 1500 hours UTC to 1900 hours UTC. It's launching out of Slick 40 at Cape Canaveral. And uh, 
that's the last one. So those are your upcoming Space Flight events. All right. And so now we can finally deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. A special shout out to Chris, Colin, Chubby, Gopal, Kenton, VT... Uh, anyone else I might have missed uh, for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you guys so much. And if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, hoodies, and very, very, very soon posters. Yay! You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody.